Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello all and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Otolia-Baird and today I'm joined by Urvshi Chakravarti, author of Fictions of Consent, Slavery, Servitude and Free Service in Early Modern England, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. Urvshi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. The book is absolutely fantastic. I had a super time reading it. It provoked a huge amount of thought, um, and I'm so excited to have a discussion with you about it today. But before we go about talking about fictions of consent, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this particular topic? Thank you so much for your kind words about the book, and thank you for for giving me the opportunity to talk a bit about about it with you today. Um, so just to say a bit about myself, um, I'm an associate professor of English literature at the University of Toronto um, and I work mostly on 16th and 17th century English literature. So um, from Shakespeare to Milton broadly but um, also on a lot of less canonical texts and authors and, and that's reflected in the book as well. Um, and I'd say that most of my theoretical and methodological touchstones um, arise from uh, critical race studies as um, as a sort of investment, but also a theoretical orientation. Um, I'm really interested in the history of slavery, um, and I also work on queer studies and on gender and sexuality studies. Um, and the book really arose that the sort of kernel of the book um, lay in a question that I kept asking myself um, when I was writing my PhD thesis. And um, my PhD was about what I call the paradox of uh, serving freely in early modern English literature. And so um, one of the questions I was really interested in was why is it that uh, when we encounter these representations of service in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, which we do constantly because everyone is a servant, um, England is a service society, uh, 
why is it that so why is it that, that so many of these representations are about um, willing service or volitional service? Why is it that the best kind of service is um, service that doesn't really look like service at all? Um, and it was partly, I think, a moment um, in which uh, the in which sort of Western society in general was also really interested in service. So I was completing um, my PhD in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crash. And um, one of the things we saw at that time for a number of reasons, and I've talked about some of these reasons elsewhere, um, was a real sort of spate of TV shows and films and books that were fascinated by service um, and by sort of upstairs, downstairs narratives, not necessarily in the 16th and 17th centuries, often in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, but which were really seemingly obsessed with you know, the relationships between the upper classes and the servant classes, um, and also in the representation of servants as a kind of family, um, as a sort of extended family. And we saw this in shows like Upstairs, Downstairs, the sort of revived Upstairs, Downstairs, but also Downton Abbey, most famously perhaps um, in the book The Help on This Side of the Atlantic um, and in the film. And so there was both a kind of intellectual problem and a, a modern problem that I was grappling with, but it seemed to be reflected in the contemporary moment as well, um, in all of these sort of upstairs, downstairs um, narratives post 2008. Um, and so the question that sort of started to take shape in, in my mind was um, what our fascination, our enduring fascination with upstairs, downstairs narratives, um, what that said about our relationship to the history of labour, to the history of class, um, to the history of servitude. And one of the things that I think this book is also trying to do is to think through our present relationship to um, those histories of class and of labour. So that was a sort of landscape of um, sort of why service, why are we so obsessed with it? Why are we so obsessed with um, it being uh, given freely? Why are we so obsessed with service as a kind of affective relationship, a familial relationship? Um, and alongside all of that, what became um, really clear, I think, as I was finishing my PhD work, was a kind of... Um, real obfuscation of uh, slavery in the period. So one of the things that you would, you could often hear, um, still do to some extent, um, is this idea that early modern England didn't have slavery, that slavery hadn't really developed yet, that um, it was it was really kind of innocent of slavery. And of course, that innocence, that sense of um, an England that has never had slavery, that still persists, right? That there are, There's obviously amazing work being done um, in the present moment to, to counter that history. But that sense of um, a sort of English innocence and an English um, exceptionalism, that is a, a constant threat um, that persists to the present day. 
So that really perplexed me because I was thinking about all of these different kinds of domestic service. I was thinking about different kinds of labour, um, such as you know, indentured labour um, across the Atlantic. Um, and yet there seemed to be a real um, sort of absence of um of the possibility of enslavement and of the larger global context of enslavement. Um, And so part of what this book is trying to do is both think about the relationship between the sort of pervasiveness of service, the ubiquitousness of service, um, and how it's represented as loving, as free, as willing, and a deliberate seemingly quite strategic denial of slavery and to sort of both think with those two aspects um, together and also and I think this is the the aim of the book to answer that question what was the place of slavery in English life Um, and so what fictions of consent is really trying to do is make the claim that um within the service society that seems to be so deeply invested um, in an idea of English liberty, of English freedom that is that absolutely rejects forms of bondage, um, that English society actually contains so many of um, the seeds of the ideologies, um, the justifications, um, the structures that would build um, transatlantic slavery and racialized slavery. Thank you so much for outlining that context. That makes such a, a, a really profound difference to how I'm thinking about the book now, about this this kind of fetishization of, of the class conflict and, and the kind of the, the role of servants in, in especially British television. Um, that, that's really fascinating. Thank you. Um, if we might come back to this idea of, of exceptionalism, um, uh, I think that that's a really important uh, kind of thing to outline to begin with, because that's really where you start the book and you stress how there's this image of early modern English liberty, um, wherein slavery is just incompatible, inconceivable almost with um, within English law and culture. Could you, for our listeners, maybe explain a little bit about how this image came into being, this exceptionalism, and why it's really so problematic, I guess, for moving forwards with a lot of this scholarship? Yes, thank you so much for the sort of getting to, um, I think, the, the the key problem, I think, which is that in some ways, I think we have, first of all, I think we've cast backwards a lot, right? So, um, you know, that the, the, the sort of joke, the, the Eric William joke, right? English, um, the English invented slavery so that they could abolish it, um, which is, it's not really a joke. It, it is um, very much the case that I think within um uh, a sort of cultural consciousness, um, uh, Britain abolished slavery, right? Um, and so we, I think we have sort of cast backwards from that. Um, and one of the, the ways in which we have done that, one of the ways in which we've done that is that um, there's obviously this, um, this very famous case, which is both... Um, really, really important, really significant in some of the um, legal adjudications that come later, but which is also kind of um, kind of hard to get a handle on because we don't have a record of it itself. Um, and this is Cartwright's case in the 16th century. And so there's this language that um, 
develops um, th this line that's attributed to Carl White's case, um, which is about um, supposedly um, uh, it's, it's a slavery case, um, and the line that that sort of gets picked up and used again and again um, is that England is too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. And so this line gets um, retold in a 17th century case um, of John Lilburn, and then it gets picked up again um, really famously in um, the 1772 case of Somerset v. Stuart, um, which um, sort of supposedly established that... that um, all enslaved people were emancipated um, within England, but obviously um, wasn't quite as, as decisive um, as it may have seemed, as several scholars have, have pointed out. So it's a it's an interesting history because it's a sort of um, in every instance, it's a kind of reconstitution, or the way I see it is, is as a kind of reconstitution of early modern England um, as being, you know, too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. We also have that really famous line from William Harrison in the late 16th century, right? As for slaves and bondmen, we have none. Um, but so much of our impression, I think, um, of the 16th and early 17th century as being sort of innocent of slavery is through these later, um, these later sort of um, remarkings, these later revisitings um, of an early modern case that um, we don't really have um, to, to refer to. Um, so it's a kind of, temporal anomaly as someone who works on sort of queer temporality and, and also thinks um, about um, is currently thinking about the ways in which futurity works um, it's a really interesting dynamic I think that so much of what we what we have established about early, early modern England as a kind of um, sort of reconstitution um, of the past so we have I think this idea that has taken hold um, and it continues to persist into the present day so that um, certainly when I was you know, great learning English history I didn't learn anything about um, British involvement in uh, the transatlantic trade and enslaved people that just that just wasn't part of my education so you also get I think um, this constant um, elision um, this constant erasure into the present day of of this past um so that's sort of one part of the puzzle i think this relationship between um the present and the sort of submerged history of slavery which then gets written back onto um the early modern period itself but i think within the context of early modern english history and law um, and culture part of what we see is um an investment in service and um an insistence that service is ubiquitous everyone is a servant right this is what we mean by when we say that early modern england is a service society um and not only is everyone a servant, a, to be a servant is to lay claim to a mode of English liberty. So 
Um, the Book of Common Prayer obviously establishes this in a very particular way um, when it says that service is perfect freedom. And I talk about that moment, um, sort of what happens when you tie freedom to service in a very particular way. Um, well, what happens when you tie freedom to service is that slavery becomes the opposite, not just of freedom, slavery becomes the opposite of service. So they aren't seen as sort of um, two forms of servitude on the same spectrum. They're actually seen as, as really antithetical to one another. And um, the way we see this playing out is in um, sort of legal context like the um, the Vagrancy Act of the mid-16th century. Now, that gets overturned quite quickly, but under the provisions of that act, someone who is a masterless man, which is to say someone who is not a servant, um, can be taken into slavery. So the way to be taken into slavery in England is to not to, is not to be a servant. Um, and so I find this act really interesting um, for two reasons. First of all, because it sort of establishes um, this link between service and freedom and it establishes slavery as antithetical to both of those things. But also it establishes that actually there was an imaginary of slavery within early modern England. It just was being negotiated in ways that we that we may not have considered. So that's sort of the the legal and I think historical um, landscape of this, what I think is complicated, of course, is that the other thing that gets, I think, missed out when we when we consider these dynamics is that actually um, England was taking part um, in slaving endeavours. And we know this from you know, the voyages of John Hawkins and then um, Francis Drake, um, who accompanied him, and this was happening with with the support and the funding of of the crown. Um, and obviously, there's there's been work on this, but I think there's the there is a need for um, a kind of continued excavation of the extent to which um, England was fully participating um, in these endeavours. Um, and um, obviously, there's also been work done on the ways in which England was um, not just sort of engaging, as Hawkins and Drake did, for instance, but also sort of participating in um, Spanish slaving endeavours in various in various ways. And I think part of what has happened is that because everyone was a servant, because we've thought about England as a service society, um, that has ended up providing a kind of alibi for this idea that there was no slavery. So I think the other thing that's emerged, the other thing that's happened is we've really overlooked how these histories of service and of class and of labour are also intertwined with the history of slavery. So this, I think, idea that early modern England is innocent of slavery um, has unfortunately provided some fuel to the fire when it comes to the larger historical um, innocence around England's involvement um, in the history of slavery. 
And you make a really powerful argument, I think, arguing that, you know, bondage and slavery, you say, were quintessentially and fundamentally an English condition and concern. And that really rings true as you read through the book. Um, and I think it was a helpful point now to, to maybe turn to the actual title, which is Fictions of Consent, um, which is really one of your, I, what I picked up at least being, you know, one of the core arguments that you're putting forward about how slavery could be so quintessentially English, you know, in spite of these, we might call kind of conceptual gymnastics and linguistic gymnastics taking part, um, taking place at the, at the period. I was wondering, could you unpack a little bit about this argument of fictions of consent? What, what is exactly do you mean by this term fictions of consent? Thank you for that question. Yes, it's it's a term that I grappled with a lot, actually, and I sort of wondered um, the, the sort of the history behind that. Like, is for a long time, really, up until I sort of submitted the book, I was like, "Is this is this really the title? Is this?" And I I went with it in the end because I think it does sort of encapsulate um, a couple of the the problems um and as you point out thank you for, for reading so carefully some of the arguments of this book um the the sort of kernel of, of this book as i as i mentioned was really this i this question um you know why is it that um that so many of these representations of service um are 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 invested in a kind of depiction of volition. Um, why is it really um, that the best kind of service is the one that doesn't look like service at all? Um, and that that really arose from. Um, I, I have lots of different materials in the book, um, so sort of plays and poems and. Um, prose tracts and polemics and letters and but also um, indentured servant contracts and apprenticeship contracts and legal cases but I also look a lot at um, the reception of Roman slavery and um, one of the um, in one of those translations um, an early modern translation of um, a play by Terence um, there's a reference to um, uh, an emancipated um, Roman slave um, talking about how um, he was freed because he served like a free man. Um, and so it was this idea that um, serving like a free man is the best kind of service. And so the term fictions of consent um, arose because one of the things I was I was noticing and trying to, to unpick um, was this um, tension, really, that even when um, volition um, or um, absolute consent doesn't seem to be in evidence, um, we must still sort of devise, or these texts um, must still devise a way um, of formulating or representing um, or disseminating, really, that that kind of consent. Um, and one of the sort of larger historical legacies, I think, of this is um, the idea that and the figure of um, the happy slave in the Atlantic context. And um, that figure is obviously really important and really pervasive. Um, and 
again, we, we might think of this as a sort of outdated trope that the, the enslaved person in, in the American context or the Atlantic context who um, is part of the family who, um, yes, they're enslaved, but, you know, they're treated really, really well. Um, and we might think of that as sort of um, a vestige of an old rage, but, you know, even in the last few years, we still have textbooks from across the US um, that say things like, um, sometimes slaves were treated as part of the family, right? That's a really obviously um, insidious and problematic way of thinking about enslavement. But I think it reveals the persistence of this trope of the happy slave. And one of the things that I think um, early modern fictions of consent, as I call it, are doing is setting us up for this idea um, and for this possibility of sort of happy enslavement um, of, if not quite willing enslavement, then certainly a mode of consensual um, bondage. Um, and so this the fiction of consent, this idea that consent um, is... Um, is written into these dynamics is, I think, one of the fictions that sort of prescripts, um, that anticipates um, and that authorises this legacy of, of happy slavery. And um, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting um, about some of these early modern English documents and the ways in which they do this is when consent gets written in um, and when it gets written out. So, for instance, one of the things that I look at are um, contracts for indentured servants um, going to, you know, um, sort of the, going across the Atlantic in the mid-17th century. And um, these indentured servant contracts are actually um, fairly, fairly typical um, and they're also, of course, um, sort of part of a contractual um, and historical uh, legacy of apprenticeship contracts. So in the English context and then later in the American contract, context too, um, servants, would, um, servants would sort of bind themselves over as apprentices for, seven, for several years. And, and a lot of that language finds its way into indentured servant contracts. However, um, one of the things that I was noticing as I was looking at a lot of these indentured service contracts um, for servants going across the Atlantic is that they would include the word um, voluntarily. So, um, you know, the servant, whoever they are, voluntarily covenanted to do X, Y, Z. Um, and that word voluntarily is one that I hadn't much encountered in the apprenticeship contract. So part of me was sort of wondering, well, why is it that this word voluntarily actually shows up in the context of indentured service? Um, and what does that say about this contract that it needs to emphasize, maybe needs to fabricate um, a form of volition that maybe wasn't quite as apparent before, maybe wasn't quite as um, uh, necessary um, before. Um, and 
sort of my argument about that is it needs to it needs to include that explicit allusion to volition because the indentured servant contract is is closer to possibly um, forms of abuses or is more open to forms of abuse is more open to forms of bondage than the protections of the apprenticeship contract would have would have been uh, vulnerable to um, so the the, I mean, the apprenticeship contract is, is also really interesting. The the body of, of uh, sorry, uh, the indentured servitude contract for servants going across the Atlantic is also really interesting um, because you get all of these sort of gaps in the operations of consent. So some of them, for instance, don't have a term of service um, specified. Um, there's a there's a kind of space where you're supposed to write in the term of service. Some of those have been left blank accidentally. So again, that's a kind of form of abuse that they're um, susceptible to. Um, and then the reason sort of breaking down this term fiction of consent further, the reason I was really interested in this term fiction is partly because I am myself a literary study scholar, I'm a literary historian, um, and the word fiction, of course, does a lot of of work because on the one hand um, it gestures to just sort of an act of imagining right it's um, it's there's a, a sense of possibility um, a sense of sort of new horizons but it also gestures to um, an act of mendacity to outright fabrication um, and so part of the reason why the, the term fiction was, I think, so useful um, to me in trying to think through these problems was because it did sort of allow for both possibilities. Um, the, the, the possibility that what's being imagined is a more capacious um, understanding of what consent is. Um, and then also it's um, really a, an attempt to fabricate consent when it's not there. Um, and it also, the term fictions, I think, also um, sort of allowed me to think more capaciously about um, the different ways in which service and servitude um, were being made, were being fabricated, were being sort of imagined um, as consensual um, and how the kind of narrative registers of consensual service were paving the way to um, ideas or for ideas of the happy slave in, in the Atlantic context. I do just want to say one final thing, if I may, about um, consent, because I think one of the, the, the questions that this book is really asking is also um, about how not just slavery, but a particular kind of racialized slavery is being sort of brought about. And um, the question I sometimes get about this book is, you know, do, do you really believe that consent is possible um, in these relationships of, of service, perhaps in these relationships of, of servitude in the, in the context of indentured servitude? Um, and I always find that a really complicated question to answer because the truth is that um, what I'm really interested in both in the book and, but also in my work as a whole is how power operates and so if we think about um, racial formation as really a mechanism of making power um, it's 
I, I sort of find myself asking, um, what does what does it mean to have um, a, a kind of service society that that paves the way for mechanisms and structures of racialized slavery to come about? In the context of of consent. Um, the, the answer to that question, I do believe that, that consent is really possible, is I'm not sure it is when you have these, these massive imbalances um, of power. Um, and so part of why I sort of turn to fictions of consent as a term um, is also, I think, to flag that problem of, of power. Um, and what it means and whether it's even possible to think about um, the circulation of consent in context of real imbalances um, of power and how they can also, how they can sort of strategically um, also pave the way for thinking about um, operations of, of class and also of racial formation. And you really do turn to a number of sites of power um, within the book to kind of analyze this and think about their role in the dissemination of lots of these ideas. Um, and I think one of the core arguments that really struck me was was regarding the role of education. Um, and you state that the schoolroom rather than the sea or the shore or the slave market was the primary contact zone for slavery. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you see education and, and the schoolroom as being such an important site of this kind of site of power and also site of disseminating a lot of these, as you say, increasingly racialized understandings of, of kind of service and servitude and bondage. Thank you. Yes, I, I am. I must admit, I'm sort of. I continue to be obsessed by by the schoolroom um, and. It's one of these oddities, I think, of, of writing a book where, where all of a sudden you, you also realise that you're writing about things you hadn't quite realised you're writing about. So, for instance, when I finished this book, I, I was sort of um, struck by the fact that I'd um, almost without intending to written quite a lot about um, the role of children um, in these structures, but I hadn't, hadn't quite realised I was doing that. Um, the, so I, I'm really interested in what... The, what the humanist curriculum um, and what the, the grammar school curriculum at this time is is doing. Um, so as as I've mentioned, so much of the book is is about trying to think about the very quotidian, the sort of everyday, the almost sort of um, unnoticed almost um, areas and arenas in which ideologies of slavery are being um, introduced, navigated, disseminated, reimagined. Um, and so I think part of the reason we've thought about um, early modern England as sort of innocent um, of, of slavery or um, we've thought about it as, as, as only sort of um, slowly, um, sort of very haughtingly, very intermittently uh, participating in, in these economies um, is because we've thought about slavery as a, as a mode of encounter, right? The, um, the ship, the market, right? It's sort of an overseas phenomenon. And so part of what um, 
I was trying to think about in this book was all these very quotidian spaces at these everyday spaces. Um, among them, the schoolroom, some of the others are, you know, the household, the theatre. And the reason why I find that the schoolroom really interesting is because at the same time as... Um, at the same time as we're sort of saying that England wasn't quite involved in 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 this in this trade, we do have um, grammar school students as part of as a key part of their education, as a key part of the humanist curriculum, reading Roman slave plays um, and learning about Roman slavery through these through these texts. Um, and so the the genre that I look at in particular is um, Roman slave comedy, and particularly the plays of Terence. Um, and this is, I think, really important, not just because these plays are, are featuring slavery, not just because schoolboys are reading them, but also because um, they're reading them aloud and they're, um, they're not just encountering them, they're also sort of um, speaking these parts aloud, so they're kind of ventriloquizing slavery um, and they're also ventriloquizing masters um, so the the term for um, a master in um, in some of these plays that they're reading magister um, it means a master but it also means um, a teacher and it also means a father so schoolboys are sort of in a really interesting position where they're reading about Roman slavery but they're also kind of navigating that own relationships to um, to sort of um, the their, their sort of teacher, um, their own relationships to power, their own relationships um, to hierarchy, um, and the 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 kind of negotiation of status um, that I think we encounter is. Um, also apparent in some of the the dictionaries and the lexicons that that schoolboys are potentially using, um, and I look at some of these as well. So, um, for instance, one of the things we see a lot in Roman slave plays and in the translations of Roman slave plays is that the term "servus" is very rarely um, translated as slave. It's almost always translated as servant. In, in the period or in some variation thereof. Um, and that was one, that was this kind of key problem as well um, that, that I encountered. Um, a key question, why is it that the term servos is always translated um, as servant? If you look at some of the dictionaries and lexicons that schoolboys are reading, what you'll see is that, um, for instance, um, the term puer, um, is which means boy is translated as a child or a servant, um, and yet that term servant is also part of how the term servus is translated in the same lexicon. Right, so you have these sort of these assonances between the figure of the puer and how the child is situated within these networks um, of service and slavery, even on a kind of lexical level. So to be a schoolboy, to read these plays, to sort of um, read, read these lexicons, to read these dictionaries, to think about his relationship to a magister, um, these are these are kind of part of the cultural fabric, the intellectual fabric um, of being 
um, a grammar school boy <laughs> in the early modern period. Um, and, you know, there's been really interesting work, too, on the way in which um, education and, and specifically sort of grammar school education in, in, and humanist education in, in the early modern period um, is maybe part of the mechanism by which schoolboys sort of navigate and negotiate their own status. So um, they're sort of playing the parts of perhaps freedmen or, you know, the figure of the wily slave. They're also playing the part of you know, the rebellious son or the master or the father. And all of this is a kind of acculturation to their own place in the world, um, a sort of navigation of their own status. And yet these are the very same children who might grow up to, for instance, um, invest in the Royal African Company. Right. So so much of the kind of acculturation um, to slavery, the playing of and around context of enslavement, um, all of this, I think, is sort of part of an accretion um, of um, accretion of a navigation of context of servitude um, and slavery. Um, and so when you have that kind of contact zone, it's, it's every day, um, it's almost naturalized, it's quotidian. That kind of negotiation is what um, I was really um, interested in thinking about. Um, and some of the, the ways in which um, I think we see the child navigate this, um, or specifically the schoolboy navigate this, um, that I was really interested in was sort of how they pick up um, the the language of um, racial formation. So what I was particularly struck by when I was um, looking at these translations of, of Roman slave comedies, particularly Terence's comedies in particular, was how the language of early modern translation was thinking about and reconstituting the context of Roman slavery. So I'll give you an example. Um, there's a moment in uh, Terence's play Eunicus or the Eunuch, um, where you have um, an Ethiopian uh, slave girl and she's never named um, and she's you know, in, in, in Terence in, in the Latin um, she's referred to as Ethiopica but when that play gets translated um, there's specific um, early modern early 17th century translation um, that refers to her as um, a blackamoor wench. And so that's a really interesting moment for me because that is a moment where you see the early 17th century picking up um, the Ethiopian, uh, the figure of the Ethiopian slave as a quote-unquote blackamoor wench. And so this term blackamoor is really interesting um, in terms of early modern England. It's both really capacious, but it's also used um, in uh, Elizabeth I's so-called expulsion edicts, where she sort of um, seems to expel um, the quote-unquote, um, uh, the people she refers to as, as quote-unquote blackamoors from England. Um, 
and that is part of a negotiation um, around slavery, um, as scholars have shown. So to think about the the figure of Ethiopia and Terence as a black and more wench is already specifically to be thinking about the terms of racialized slavery is one of the things I'm arguing here. Um, and then there's another sort of Terence edition where that figure of the Ethiopian maid, um, who is represented quite uh, more or less um, the same as, as the other figures in Terence, in a woodcut, that figure has been inked in. So her face has been blackened and her hands have been blackened. And I refer to this as um, the sort of inscription of the the stain of slavery onto the face of Ethiopia. And the stain of slavery is a, is a particular term that um, I think is really, really important um, for our understanding of sort of the development of racialized slavery, because it's actually a sort of translation of a Roman idea. So in the Latin, um, there's this idea of, of the macula servitutis, um, and that's this idea that there's a sort of met- metaphorical stain of slavery that attaches um, to the body of um, even formerly enslaved people. And my argument is that part of what you see happening through the reception of um that these Roman slave plays by schoolboys is actually a reception of this metaphorical idea of a stain of slavery and a reconstitution of that metaphorical stain of slavery into an actual um, imaginary of a stain of slavery, an imaginary of a, of a quote-unquote stain of slavery that is legible, that is written on the body, and that is heritable. In other words, what we see is the reconstitution of the Roman metaphorical stain of slavery into um, an early modern, um, heritable, racialized, legible stain of slavery. Now, this is obviously an imaginary. Um, This is complicated um, in many ways. Um, But it is through this reception of uh, the classical context of slavery that I think we really see the groundwork laid for um, the the idea of of a racialized slavery um, that is also sort of constituted not just through um, this imaginary of of a stain of slavery, this imaginary of slavery as epidermal, um, as heritable, but also through the constitution um, and the the sort of um, coalescing of ideas of whiteness. So um, at the same time as we have children in the classroom sort of reading all of these plays, um, I think sort of reconstituting the stain of slavery, as I said, sort of coming up with this idea of stain of slavery, however tacitly, however sort of, um, uh, sort of however implicitly, um, we also are in a moment where English um, merchants and um, adventurers are themselves being captured um, and by Barbary pirates amongst others, and they're writing captivity narratives, this very popular genre in early modern England, um, about their experiences of bondage and slavery. And so 
the question might arise, well, if English people are sort of being taken into slavery, it, doesn't it mean that that's, um, that it's a kind of universal experience? And my argument is that actually what we see developing at this period is an idea that English people can always be redeemed from slavery that they can sort of come out of their experiences of bondage and write a captivity narrative and so on and so forth. And it's that idea, it's that ability to emerge from slavery um, that, and to be redeemed from it and to not have it sort of be a stain that persists on your body, that persists through generations. That is how whiteness is also being constituted. Whiteness as a kind of um, cultural, political, racial force that accrues power to itself. Um, and I think this is a moment that um, we might think about in um, a play like Othello. Othello talks about, you know, being redeemed from slavery. And so that's a very... Um, that's an uncommon phenomenon to be enslaved, redeemed out of slavery. But part of what Othello as a play is doing is sort of showing us how that ability to be redeemed and not have to sort of suffer the consequences going forward, that is an ability that is being demarcated um, for white people, not for people like Othello. And that is, I think, part of the argument of the play that um, it's sort of establishing how this this idea of the stain of slavery, this idea of a racialized slavery is also being um, it, it being sort of disseminated and, and sort of um, established at this time. One final thing um, I want to say about uh, schoolboys, if I may, is I think it's also really interesting to think about grammar school education within this larger context of um, the role that children play um, in uh, in context of servitude and bondage and slavery, because um, part of the argument of the book is that children are really at the limit case um, of servitude and bondage. So that um, we have, you know, when, when we get uh, attempts to um, sort of uh, regulate indentured um indentured servitude in the late 17th century and there are less attempts to regulate indentured servitude than they are attempts to um, protect people from accusations of, of, of capturing servants or sort of seducing servants across the Atlantic illicitly but we'll leave that aside when we do get those um, sort of edicts to, to regulate indentured servitude they often contain these provisions around, uh, you know, how old does a child have to be? When can they consent? Um, where, how how long do they leave? How long do they need parental permission? So, children are sort of at the limit case of consent. Um, it's also really interesting. Um, I'm very interested in sort of lexical histories and and etymologies and genealogies of language, obviously, but there's also an association between the term kids, which means children, but kids also refer to indentured servants um, in uh, in the early modern period. So, so that's also a kind of interesting connection. But of course, children are necessary for um, the imaginary of heritable slavery. Um, and so the sort of nexus of children sort of a 
receiving slavery, children being sort of assuring the futurity of enslavement. Um, that's sort of an interesting conundrum to me. Um, and then I was also really interested in how school children are receiving Roman slavery, because of course, um, in in the book end of this book, at the, at the very end of the coda, um, I think about how children in post-emancipation contexts on both sides of the Atlantic um, are also receiving the sort of post-emancipation um, uh, stories um, about, you know, how 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 slavery was, how it will be, how um, you know apprenticeship should be. They're receiving instructions on how to um, relate to their former masters in the case of formerly enslaved children. So I think children are really, and particularly school children, um, are really key to how we understand um, the cultural reception of and the authorization of and the dissemination of ideologies of slavery. But you don't just talk about children. You talk about so much more. There's so much in this book. I mean, it's, it's astounding because, I mean, you have such a focus on education and it's, I mean, it, it really is fascinating. But you also then bring a lot of these questions into talking about the family and the household more kind of broadly speaking. Um, and I was wondering, you know, you talk about how there was a changing understanding of the family in Renaissance England and how this really gave rise to a reimagining of slaves and servants and servitude. Could you just tell us a little bit about how this takes shape? Because I think this is a really fundamental kind of turning point in thinking about some of these very complex understandings of race and also whiteness that you've already been mentioning. Yes, I I can say thank you. I'm also just really obsessed by sort of how we think about about the family. Obviously, I've, I've talked about how um, so much of sort of the um, the behind the scenes catalyst for for what I think about in the book is is my sort of guilty pleasure viewing which was Downton Abbey aware and, and why is it that the family is 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 um so central to our imaginings of what services but the family is is also um I think really central to um both this book and our understandings of slavery for a couple of reasons so um I've already mentioned sort of some of my um uh interest, um, really fascination with um, thinking about um, sort of our lexical histories, um, the kind of philological um, aspects of, of um, the, the questions that, um, and the sort of lines of inquiry that I'm exploring. Um, and as an aside, you know, thinking about some of these etymologies, some of these histories, um, language, the language that we use every day, um, is also, of course, part of the quotidian, um, everyday way in which we um, sort of move through and disseminate um, sort of cultural ideas and ideologies. So in terms of the family, what I think is really fascinating right off the bat is where that word comes from. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, the term comes from um, the Roman word for a household, familiar, but it also comes um, from the term famulus, which was um, a Roman household slave. Um, and so right away within this idea, this word, really, um, we get this sort of history, this sort of um, allusion to uh, the context of, of Roman slavery. 
and slavery more broadly. Um, there's also, I think, a really interesting way in which when we think about um, the family and the household, we get these two different meanings, and they both persist, actually, um, quite late. Um, so on the one hand, it refers to the servants um, of a household. Um, and on the other hand, it has these allusions, obviously, um, to sort of consanguinity, to blood. And so part of what I think is happening at this moment um, is a, a negotiation of these two contexts and a kind of turn to a more sort of blood-based understanding of family. Um, in the context of in response to um, what has been an understanding of family that also includes all of the servants. Um, and part of the way in which um, that is happening, and one of the reasons I think in, that's happening, is precisely because um, of these sort of uh, shifting contexts around service and slavery um and so there are a couple of sort of uh, i don't want to say opposing but sort of parallel um developments um that, that are happening at this time um one of the aspects um of sort of the representations of service that we see during um this time that that's so interesting to me um is the way in which um servants, uh, particularly domestic servants, and this isn't often in a very particular class context, are sort of um, kind of working out their relationship to sort of blood-based family. Um, and so part of what we're seeing at this time is um, a kind of delineation and increasing um, emphasis on the family as um sort of specifically demarcated along the contours of shared blood um, and by extension, a sort of shared sort of racial um, formation. Um, and yet, at the same time, I think because of this history of sort of imagining um, servants as part of the family, that sort of definitional understanding of servants as part of the family, um, you're also laying the groundwork for imagining um, or fabricating an imaginary of um, enslaved people as members of the family and also of sort of really underscoring the kinds of, of fictions of family that underwrite slavery, this idea that Oh, they're treated like members of the family. So, so you know, it's not as bad as it could be. Um, and so, I think the kind of the operation of the family sort of lends itself um, to both of these aspects. And what we see um, in the early modern period in England is sort of the the way in which um, both of these um, strategies really um, are being put into place. The other thing. Um, to note, of course, is that so much of um, what of, of of what we think about when we think about sort of heritability, um, and this goes back to to this idea of, of children, but also I think really sort of um, looks ahead to um, 
the ways in which we think about um, what what kind of authorizes what um, secures um, racialized slavery is this idea of, of heritability, um, and there the family becomes um, really complex and really key um, because, of course, the kind of um, the association between futurity, between reproduction, between natality, um, and um, context of enslavement become um, become really important. Um, and I think the the family um, as, an, as an edifice, as, even as a word, sort of really lies at the heart of um, so many of those sort of strategies of slavery. As you've mentioned, the coda of the book brings us then into the 18th and 19th century. And it looks at this legacy of the discourse of happy servitude uh, across, especially in Atlantic literature. And you really show how so much of what's happening um, in the English Renaissance that you've been speaking about today provides that conceptual architecture for the later racialized slavery that we are perhaps uh, much more attuned to or much more, um, uh, we might say, willing to talk about um, in some ways. But I think we should leave something for, for people to go away and, and read of their own accord and bo- go and buy the book most importantly for your university libraries or for yourselves but um obviously we've taken up so much of your time today it's been so enlightening to hear from you i was wondering before we let you go whether we could just get a snippet an idea of what you're currently working on whether it's in the same vein or whether you're moving on to to new fields thank you um the, I am I'm working on a second book um, at the moment that that really picks up on many of these questions, but is also taking a bit of an unexpected turn um, as, as these things do. So the the book that I'm I'm writing at the moment um, really arises out of so many of the lines of inquiry I was interested in pursuing in the first book. Um, so it's about um, the sort of nexus of race reproduction and enslavement in the British Atlantic world from the 16th to the 18th century. So it's sort of, a, 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 I, I imagined it um, as, as picking up on some of these questions about um, reproduction and natality that I started to think about in the first book but which I really wanted to un- unpack um, in the second. Um, and so I am especially interested in thinking about um, how um, reproduction becomes racialized in the context of British Atlantic slavery, um, and in particular how we imagine the future as a kind of racialized endeavor. Um, as I've been writing the book, however, um, what I thought would be a couple of chapters um, have instead ballooned um, and now may just, you know, just become um, a book in and of themselves. Um, and so what I'm, what the book has sort of become as it currently stands is really a book also about not just how reproduction is racialized, not just how futurity is racialized, but how um, within these contexts of slavery and um imperialism in in the British Atlantic world, um, we also see um, a construction uh, or the construction of white womanhood. And so the book is is really currently um, about how 
the category of white womanhood is created um, in this period and how central it is to so many of the operations of, um, of slavery and of imperialism. And so part of what it's looking at is um, really the formation of whiteness um, as a category um, and how whiteness as an operation of power is made um, and specifically how it's made in gendered ways. It's looking at the creation of the gendered category of of woman um, and sort of how that's contingent um, on these very sort of particular um, racialized dimensions um, and how central those both are to um, the development um, and the perpetuation um, of slavery and imperialism um, in the early modern period. And um, as as with the first book, as you can probably hear, part of what um, I find myself really thinking about in in the second, as, as I'm writing it, is how um, how those afterlives and how those legacies um, of those histories continue to persist into the present day so that um, our ideas, our reception, our navigation of white womanhood as an identity category, as um, as a kind of political category, um, how much those have sort of been forged in the fires um, of the of the British Atlantic world and particularly um, the the trade and enslaved peoples and um, the development of empire in, in the early modern world. Well, I hope you will come back and talk to us about that book, books, plural, potentially um, in the near future. Thank you so much for being here. The author of uh, Fictions of Consent, Slavery, Servitude and Free Service in Early Modern England, Urshvi Chakravati, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me and, and thank you for the chance to, to talk through all of these ideas with you. It's been such a pleasure.